Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, July 15th. We begin with our monthly conversation with Police Chief Mark Newfeld. We talk about the latest trends in crime facing our city during the pandemic and hear the Chief's thoughts on last week's City Hall public hearings on systemic racism. Next, we speak with economist Trevor Toom on the state of the Alberta Heritage Trust Fund. We'll look at how the fund has been impacted during this volatile time and what this means for Albertans. Next, we head stateside for a COVID-19 update. Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini has the latest, including a record-breaking number of both cases and deaths in Florida. What can we learn from the sports world when it comes to the spread of viruses? Details on research from the University of Calgary that links an increase of flu cases to cities with professional sports teams. And finally, it's a celebration one century in the making. We catch up with Calgarian Harry McDonald Eisenhower, who last week celebrated his 100th birthday. We hear Harry's advice on living a long life. 709 now. Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld joins us this morning. It is his monthly visit with us here on the Morning News. We say good morning, Chief. How are you? I'm doing great, Sue. How about you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. You know, I wanted to start with a story that's in our newscast this morning, and that's uh, that Calgary Police yesterday released photos of the suspect they're searching for in what you are calling extremely traumatic, an extremely traumatic sexual assault that happened in the community forest lawn a year ago. So can you tell us any more about this, who you're looking for, how we might be able to help police on this one? You know what? I heard about this one on the way in uh, myself uh, this morning, so I can't help you too, okay. too much on this one. Okay, fair but, enough. Uh, I know we've released some information, and the investigator actually did a bit of a media availability yesterday, so I think that info will be out there. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. So let's talk about decriminalizing uh, you know, personal drug possession. That was something that we wanted to chat with you about as a means of protecting vulnerable populations. Sounds like this is something that the Association of Chiefs of Police is talking about. Your feelings on that? Yeah, we've been looking at this actually for some time. And in fact, the uh, CACP sent a delegation um, to a number of different countries back in 2018, I believe it was, to look at different ways that this was being handled. So um, they visited places like Portugal and Norway and Sweden and that sort of thing. And and certainly taking a public health approach to um, this issue, certainly the issue of, um, of simple possession and uh, looking at not legalization of drugs, obviously, but looking at, at decriminalization. And really what we're talking about is um, deferring individuals that have drug problems into uh, public health systems to try to get help as opposed to the criminal justice system. And success has been uh, seen in other parts of the world, Chief? Yeah, it has been. And I think that that's, that's something that's really important because um, we know there's lots of good people that get caught up in uh, drug use for a variety of reasons, and that's complex. But, I mean, for people who are not violent and who are caught up in that cycle, if they can come through that and get the supports that they need and ultimately get back to being productive without having extensive criminal records and criminal justice involvement, I think that's very helpful for them. Can you point to, you know, sort of in the states where we see that three strikes rule where, you know, some people who get caught with small amounts of drugs, you know, end up spending their life in prison. So is this a way of sort of, you know, avoiding something like that down the road? Well, these days, yeah, I suppose in, in, on some level, but these days I really like to be careful with our comparisons to the U.S. because I think there's been a lot of <laughs> yeah. com- comparisons that... Uh, there is no comparison, but is that sort of the, 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 the message that you're trying to get away from is, is you know, small amounts of drugs are, are, you know, you would decriminalize that sort of thing? Yeah, that's just it. We're talking about nonviolent uh, 
uh, individuals there who uh, don't represent, uh, you know, don't have big records or they're not folks that we're dealing with all the time, mm-hmm. who are really basically, um, you know, a slave to addiction. So from a policing standpoint, we think we should be focused on individuals who are, you know, importing or manufacturing or trafficking drugs that are actually uh, preying on people who have addictions and not actually criminalizing the people who are just dealing with uh, drug addiction issues themselves. Chief, it was an important series of meetings at City Hall last week, the public hearings on systemic racism. Uh, from what you uh, did see and, and, and perhaps what you've heard, uh, what was your biggest takeaway from that? Uh, biggest takeaway, I would say, is the importance of engagement and the fact that we have more work to do. This was something that, you know, prior to... Um you know, prior to May, um, didn't seem to be on anybody's radar. Um, you know, and these are important issues, but certainly we didn't think they were big issues here in Calgary. And uh, and we do have um, close relationships with our communities. And of course, we realize that those um, some of the connectivity was interrupted by the pandemic. But uh, yeah, we were we were a bit surprised, I think, uh, by um, the. Um, the sentiment, not only here, but around the world, obviously, and everybody, I think everybody kind of resonated with what happened um, and, the, and, the, and the negative nature of what happened in Minneapolis. But yeah, that was the biggest surprise. And for us, that this, is a, this is an ongoing issue. And I think the community's asked us, you know, to uh, take our uh, efforts to the next level. And that's what we intend to do. With that movement continuing and as we continue to come out of this lockdown, what are your officers seeing on the street right now? Are there any trends that we should be aware of? Well, I think the big ones are, are basically just that we're returning a little bit more to normal. So as we've mentioned in the past, when uh, when the lockdowns and public health restrictions were in, we saw a little bit of a, a reduction in um, demand, which stands to reason, right, because we saw less traffic on the roads and businesses closed down. But we're really starting to see things return, you know, more or less to normal. So, um, you know, we're still worried about the fact that the pandemic is out there as well, and we're wanting to make sure that uh, we don't see that uh, resurgence that they have seen in the U.S. and that sort of thing. But just from even a crime standpoint, um, you know, our numbers of shootings this year, and there was a, a disturbing one yesterday, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a strange year um, for that. And we've seen a couple of months where we've had uh, really, really um, disconcerting spikes. And I would, I would say right now, unless we sort of flatten the curve on this between now and the end of the year, we're on par to have a, uh, a banner bad year. Wow. Uh, deeper into the uh, reopening of, of phase two, and still we don't know the date of phase three. A lot of restrictions have been lifted in, in our different, uh, well, all four corners of the city when it comes to stores and organizations. Uh, but I'm wondering if uh, police uh, still have any active role in enforcing the social distancing that still is in place. We do. We're still out and about. And so there's times where we do get, uh, we either see things that are disconcerting or else where we are called um, to that sort of uh, complaint and so again we're still taking the um, the approach of education for the most part and people I mean people know and I think people are concerned about it as well but I just think that as uh, as people start to get out and about again uh, and try to enjoy the summer um, there are places where you know people tend to congregate just naturally and so we have certainly seen um, seen uh, concentrations of people which makes it hard to follow the public health restrictions. Chief, we had seen through this pandemic an uptick of cases of domestic violence and and issues that your officers were having to deal with in homes. Are we seeing more Amber Alerts, certainly not here in Alberta, but across the country, increased calls about violence in home? Or are you starting to see those numbers come down a little bit? You know, Sue, in Calgary here, we we had an an increase in the numbers of... um domestic conflict-related calls that were non-violent. And so what, what I mean by that is um, where people were calling us early, it seemed, that's, that's certainly one theory, is people are, were calling us before things either escalated to violence or if they needed um, 
um, help with conflict resolution or exchanging children or information about court orders or whatever. But actually, our numbers here of domestic violence are actually down through the pandemic. And I, I realize that's uh, anomalous with some other places. But, um, you know, we don't know for sure what the reason for that is just yet. Um, we're hopeful that it's because uh, working with our partners, we were able to get out and remind people in anticipation of something like that, that, you know, we were still here. We haven't gone away during COVID and neither have the resources. Um, and, and hopefully that's uh, helped keep those numbers down. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of the conversation here, Chief, in the virtual half marathon, uh, Calgary Police <laughs> half marathon, September 17th to the 30th. How's your training coming? Because I know you've got some time ahead of you here. <laughs> it's been a little weak, if I'm honest, uh, <laughs> Andrew, but I'm mindful. I've got that date circled on, on my calendar here. So uh, I'm actually, my first hurdle I have to get over is uh, Chief Dogworth has challenged me to the stair climbing uh, oh. challenge there. And that's a oh, bit virtual no. and it's changed this year, too. Um, but that's uh, the 26th of July, so I got that's my first hurdle. That's just part of your training routine, Chief. It's good. It's just add it to the regimen, right? Well, well, let's hope. Uh, I'm just going to shave my chest and put the uh, paddles on there uh, for the <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's Help ready out. to go. <laughs> if something goes wrong, they can just uh, they can just press the button. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it, and good luck with the climb. Yeah, uh, you bet. Have a good day. <laughs> that is Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. 8-11 now at its lowest mark. Alberta's Heritage Savings Trust Fund was valued at $16.3 billion on March 31st. The fund taking a huge hit due to a bad investment. So we're in 2020. What should and what could we do with this money? To discuss, we are talking with economist, uh, University of Calgary economics professor Trevor Toome. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. You know, it's a dilemma, right? We hear about this all the time, and it's always sort of been referred to as this rainy day fund. So what are your thoughts? What do we do, and what could we potentially do with this Heritage Savings Trust Fund we have? Well, the Heritage Fund, we started it in 1976 as a place to store resource revenues that we uh, were saving over the years. Now, we stopped contributing resource revenues to the fund in about 1986, 1987. And ever since then, it's kind of uh, languished, if you will, at, the, at, a, at its value. We withdraw from the fund earnings that it generates from one year to the next. We keep a little bit in there to uh, protect it from inflation. But when losses occur in the fund, like we saw uh, during the financial crisis more recently, and then, of course, what we're seeing right now, we withdraw those losses as well from the fund. So we're kind of ratcheting down the overall value of the fund by withdrawing the gains in good years and taking out of the principle of the fund losses in bad years. Uh, so it's gradually becoming less and less important mm-hmm. as as a fund for Albertans. Is, is this a pot of money? Is this an account? Because I've heard in the past that, uh, you know, a lot of it is tied up in investments in the real mm-hmm. estate and such. Is that the case? Yeah. So this, this is a an investment uh, portfolio that invests in a lot of things, lots of equity, infrastructure, uh, real estate, indeed. Uh, but its its goal is to take the the now little over sixteen billion and invest it in a wide variety of uh, enterprises or or stocks, for example, and generate income. So it wants to earn a return. Now, in 2019, 2020, it actually lost. Five point one percent. So that's the the amount that its total value shrunk over the past ten years or so. On average, it earns about a little over eight percent per year. And so its goal is to generate income to help fund public services because it contributes the earnings that it does generate 
to the budget. I've seen you, Trevor, quoted in articles, you know, talking about, you know, what the government should do, perhaps, you know, should they manage it differently? Should we just deplete the, the fund entirely? What, what are your thoughts on it? Right. So what we're seeing right now is kind of an interesting moment where the fund did lose money in 2019, 2020, but a lot of that was not realized losses. It's things that they hold that they haven't yet sold, so they haven't incurred the losses. So they are still going to pay out to the government uh, some money this year. They're going to pay out a little over $1 billion uh, for the government's budget. But because they have these losses on the books, it may be the case that this fiscal year, so 2020, 2021, this is the year where we will soon hear about a very large deficit, potentially $20 billion or so as numbers that are being floated right now. Uh, this is going to contribute to that because losses uh, incurred in the fund are negative revenue, if you will, to the government. And like in the financial crisis, that uh, matters for the budget. But what we end up doing is paying for those losses by dipping into the fund value and depleting it. Uh, So here we're seeing a moment where we might be doing that again. So I think instead, what we should do is, yeah, potentially dip into the fund when losses occur. But then in future years, when income is earned, uh, not withdrawing those, you know, not spending the gains, but putting those gains back into the fund to grow it back up to its prior levels rather than right now just ratcheting down further and further the value of that fund. Should should we really take a look at this fund? Because you look at a, an example like Norway, they have their sovereign wealth fund, and a lot of times we, we hear that thrown back at us when we talk about the Heritage Trust Fund. I think it's worth over a trillion dollars, not sure, during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but should, should we be looking at a model like that? So I think so. The big difference here is, uh, I guess, twofold. Uh, they don't withdraw all the gains. They have a fixed amount that they withdraw. So they w- they take out about 4% of their fund to pay for government operations each year. Uh, we take out whatever is earned. So if we earn 8%, we'll take out the whole 8%. Uh, so theirs grows more because they don't withdraw as much from their fund. So I think, yeah, we indeed should think about that. But more importantly, they contribute to the fund their resource revenues. We stopped doing that quite some time ago. And that's you know primarily why the fund has not grown in value in Alberta, because we choose to spend resource revenues rather than save them. And I think we really should take a look at that because Spending resource revenues, relying on oil and gas royalties to fund mm-hmm. public services introduces significant volatility and risk, as we're seeing, into our budget. So it may be more prudent and it's something we should think about to save those resource revenues instead and grow the fund over time. Thanks for your take on this, Trevor. You bet. Anytime. That's University of Calgary economics professor Trevor Toome. 642 on the morning news. The search for a man whose two young daughters were found dead last weekend is now into its seventh day. With the latest, we are joined by Global's Quebec correspondent, Mike Armstrong. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. Mike, at what stage is the manhunt uh, at right now? Well, I guess uh, stable and continuing, but they seem to be pulling back a little, uh, police. Uh, They announced last night in a tweet, actually, that they're going to be, quote, modifying their strategy. Uh, They say that uh, as a result of evidence that they've collected, they won't say what evidence that is, uh, but objects that they've found, they're going to 
change the way they're doing things. Uh, they've performed autopsies, so they have the results. They're just not releasing that. They really are sort of keeping their uh, cards close to their chest at this point. They say that police, uh, the PR people, for example, won't be speaking to the media today unless there are developments. There may be um, sort of a... Uh, a relationship between how much they've been speaking and how much media attention there's been and how many unfounded rumors they've gotten and, and tips that have turned into nothing. So it seems like they sort of want to move this out of the media attention for a little bit and concentrate on the evidence that they have and sort of uh, go into that uh, as deeply as they can. Mike, does it seem, though, that they're pulling back from the actual search itself, too? Because we're hearing sort of, you know, either he could be dead or he's still out there hiding. I mean, or he could have been out of the area entirely they don't know at this point do they and they really don't i mean he could be on the run he could be hiding he could even be dead uh he could be outside the perimeter it could be as simple as he found a bicycle and was able to get further than they they think he would would have gotten uh they originally for the last few days had been searching a 15 square kilometer area they expanded that yesterday to 50 square kilometers but when you look at the numbers we don't have exact numbers but if you're in that area you see that there are a lot of police officers searching. They've even had uh, thermal cameras flying in a Transport Canada plane uh, over the site. And that does give you a very good idea whether there's anything in the forest, whether there's anything in the fields, uh, things like that, unless he was perhaps hiding under something. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like there are going to be fewer people out there searching today. And that is as a result of something that uh, police have found. Mike, police have said the girls and their father were believed to have been in a serious uh, car crash a week ago, but nobody was found inside the wrecked car when police arrived on the scene. So can you tell us the significance of this and, and uh, you know, uh, where this was in location to the other crime scene? It really is a mystery. Uh, some police aren't saying much. The It was uh, probably about uh, 10 kilometers from the area where the, where the search has been going on. And according to people, we don't exactly know where that accident took place, to be honest. Um, but there are a couple of spots where there seem to be sort of uh, track marks that show perhaps breaks and, and a collision might have taken place there. But we don't know exactly where. There is a report that there might have been an ice cream cone sort of melting on the floor or something like that when police got to the vehicle. But we really don't know sort of why the accident took place or how bad the accident might have been, whether anybody might have been injured. Police aren't saying, although at some point they said that uh, Marthe Capancier, the man they're looking for, may have been injured, and so they thought maybe he wouldn't be able to move as quickly as he appears to have been able to. But really, uh, start to finish, this is a real mystery. He's been missing since last Wednesday night. The Amber Alert went up Thursday. They've been searching for, today will be the seventh day, uh, and the girls were found on Saturday there were clues found around the area where the girls were found. And police aren't even saying whether the girls were found together. But it sort of seems Saturday as though they might have found one and then the other. So they might not have been together together. But even as far as the cause of death, we don't know that at this point. Mike, has there been anything further from, from the poor mom of these, these two girls who were killed allegedly by their father? I mean, we saw an emotional you know, visit from her to a certain site yesterday. Has she spoken at all? Not since it was actually Monday, and uh, okay. it was sort of a uh, we didn't even see it coming. It was sort of a uh, the police said, you know what, the mother's going to make a, a brief statement. Uh, we went to the memorial, which is in Lévis, sort of on the south shore of Quebec City. The mother walked out, flanked by uh, family and loved ones. 
her face just wrecked with grief, uh, incredible pain. She walked up to all these stuffed animals and and candles and photographs that had been put in this uh, gazebo in a local park. She spent probably about 15 or 20 minutes inside that gazebo with her loved ones, and then she stepped up to the microphone and, and made this just heartbreaking statement. She thanked police for their work. She thanked the public for the support, and she asked her daughters to be sort of the stars in the night to shine her way through the pain. Uh, she called her daughters uh, Rami 6 and Nora 11, her reason for living and her princesses of love. And um, we know that the relationship between the mother and father sort of broke up a few years ago. Both were actually in relationships with other people. We don't know much more than that, but there has been a request uh, to the media that uh, the family be given privacy during what is just an unimaginably painful period. Mike, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Mike Armstrong, Global's Quebec correspondent. 6.49 on the morning news. The number of coronavirus-related deaths in Florida increased by a new single-day record of 132 Tuesday as the state added more than 9,100 new COVID-19 cases. With more on the situation stateside, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Reggie, the numbers are staggering to begin with, that 9,100 from Tuesday, but that's not even the record. Is it true that Sunday's single-day record stands at 15,300 new cases? Yeah, that was the record, the highest reached by any state uh, since this pandemic began. And it is indicative of the crisis not going away, but only worsening across the country. And as you mentioned, Florida had that highest number of uh, fatalities, 132. It's also seeing about 50 of its hospitals reach capacity uh, in intensive care units. Uh, this is a growing problem now across the country. And in areas like Texas and Arizona, the hospital situation is now turning into what we saw in New York City just a few months ago, where both states are now requesting mobile morgues be brought in because of the ongoing spike in cases and the understanding from hospital administrators that this is likely going to lead to long-term stays and ultimately deaths. You know, we're hearing one state saying, you know, pulling back and closing things down again. Anything else from any other states across the country? Uh, well, what actually, do you do? Yeah, I mean, we're hearing uh, the opposite now uh, in parts of Florida, we, uh, parts of California, rather. You know, the state has really been pushing to get things back under a lockdown. But in Orange County, Florida, which is kind of, uh, you know, the, the bastion for the Republican Party in the state, they voted last night in a, a four to one uh, vote to reopen all of their schools in this wow. uh, in September as a kind of... Uh, uh, model of courage without any masks. So, you know, there's kind of a, a break within states as they try to move forward and see how this is actually going through. But there are threats of shutdowns across states, including Texas, simply because the numbers are so high. This is we're hearing uh, to the West uh, in California, Los Angeles, particularly talking about returning to the lockdown that they had uh, a few short weeks ago. Yeah, and this is because uh, cases in Los Angeles County are actually skyrocketing. The county itself has more uh, confirmed cases than 44 states combined around the United States. And it really is putting a surge and kind of crisis mode on the hospitals throughout uh, Los Angeles County. This is something that's kind of pivoting itself up and down the West Coast. Uh, and it's it's kind of uh, is reflective of the ongoing situation across the country where states are being left to deal with this crisis on their own with no national strategies being put in place by President Trump uh, and with his kind of silencing of the majority of members of the coronavirus task force, it is, uh, it, it's a state's responsibility now, which is creating more fear for the average resident. It's staggering, the numbers and the reactions. Thanks for joining us with an update this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That's Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini.
Coming up on 608 on your Wednesday morning, and there's a big difference in how Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump both talk about the virus COVID-19 on Twitter. One focusing more on politics, the other focusing on policy and public health. So is there an approach that's proven to be more effective? To discuss, we're joined this morning by Professor of Mathematics at Ryerson University, Anthony Bonato. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning. First of all, professor of mathematics, a good on you. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. Is that, are you into looking at that statistics and really kind of focusing on, on numbers and, and things that you see on, on social media? Did this, is that why this piqued your interest? Yeah, we were interested in a kind of quantitative approach of, of looking at the tweets. And, and tell us what you found, because it, does it really make a difference in how you tweet or what you post on social media then? Well, what's interesting with Trump and Trudeau, of course, they tweet a lot. Um, Trump uh, tweeted about 20,000 times over the last four years, and Trudeau about 18,000 times. So there's a lot of data there. Uh, so what we're able to do is extract uh, themes and keywords from their tweets over time and visualize them in something we call networks. What's interesting is you, you read uh, the article, theconversation.com, your process behind this. A lot of the times we hear the term algorithms and we think that, you know, these uh, different social media platforms are using them against us and to, to market toward us. But in this case, you used algorithms of these words to build your research. So tell us about the, the uh, meat and bones behind that. Right. So what we're interested in doing is looking at um, aggregate tweets. So just not just one tweet individual like the media would focus on, say, you know, Trump is tweeting on a specific thing today. We took tweets over like periods of months. So all the tweets from, say, March. And then from each individual tweet, we took keywords. And keywords are important words, things like coronavirus or country or fake news. We filtered out things like stop words called like at or the. And um, we formed a network of these keywords so that two keywords are linked if they appear in the same tweet. So tell us what you found, Anthony. Explain it for us. Yeah. So what we found, uh, we created a bunch of networks over time, like one for each month, and we compared the networks that we have for Trump and Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau, over the months, focused on things like unity, thanking frontline workers, subsidies like the CRB. He's very consistent, almost repetitive. But with Trump, he did focus on the virus, especially early on, but through a political lens. And he's referencing things like fake news, Republican primaries, transit funding, Obamagate, arrivals like sleepy Joe Biden, and so on. So it's hard to compare. We we can't exactly say apples to oranges, uh, but not exactly surprising. Uh, You know, when you look at these two separate men on uh, two uh, countries on two different paths during this pandemic. Yeah, it's not super surprising, but it's very striking in the sense that when you see when you contrast these these networks, these keyword networks, month by month, there's a very clear difference. Trudeau is presenting a like a, a front of sort of calm, steady leadership through the pandemic, and Trump is a more you know political um, tweeter. He has he's more erratic in the kind of topics he's discussing. So you know, it's interesting to people who are into facts and figures, et cetera. What does it you know if you break it down for the average person who's listening this morning? What does this tell us? What what sh- what can and should we learn from this? Well, I think it gives us another tool and another way of looking at uh, Twitter, at data from Twitter. Um, political figures, you know, their their tweets are historical record. So for us, this is just like more information that we can get, figuring out what they're thinking about the time, you know, what their policies are and so on. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's fascinating to me, like in June, for instance, uh, coronavirus doesn't even appear in Trump's uh, keywords, mm. top 100 keywords for that month. Wow. wow. 
and let's talk about the impact of social media in the sense that, you know, unlike a press release or a press conference, from what we understand, these are the words of the people who are typing these you know, messages in. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump, how powerful does that make it in your eyes that these are their actual thoughts and words? I think it makes it really powerful. And, and we're not saying in any way that, you know, the tweets of Donald Trump are influencing, you know, the spread of the coronavirus, say. But I think it does influence public opinion. Yeah. And I'll also say that, you know, we're not 100% certain exactly who's writing these tweets. In the case of Trudeau, it's more likely like a PR team with Trump. There are rumors that, that he's tweeting, you know, like three in the morning, for example. But there also is a PR team working behind them. But I think it's, you know, we're living in the age of social media. Trump is often called the, the Twitter president. So I think these are really important things we have to pay attention to. And this approach that we're taking, a more analytic, quantitative approach, is is just another way of looking at all that data. And really, in the end, you know, we won't know till after the U.S. election, obviously, but this may tell us, you know, how successful a leader can be in what and how they tweet or use social media, too. Yeah, and it's a really interesting time, of course, with what's happening with a pandemic contrasted with the political elections going on in the U.S. So we're going to keep on analyzing tweets from July, August, all the way up until the November election to get a sense of the different narratives and also look at, you know, the tweets of people like Joe Biden and see what, what Joe is talking about on, on his social media and contrast that with Trump. Is it safe to say then that uh, what you did find from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was more consistent messaging over the past handful of months and more consistent uh, words and terms uh, popping up? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And and that's actually interestingly similar to what we're hearing from even the premiers in uh, Canada. And that's another thing we want to look at. We want to look at the premiers in Canada for the provinces and also for the governors in the states and see the difference. Because as we know, you know, places like Florida and Texas are having uh, big surges of cases well, things are pretty much on a decline in Ontario and, and Alberta, for example. And, you know, Jason Kenney and, and uh, Doug Ford, who are more, you know, on the right wing of the political spectrum, their leadership and their daily briefings are, again, reflective of that kind of calm, steady leadership. Maybe it's a Canadian thing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Anthony, can you think of another application for this type of research and this type of, a, I guess, a straw poll, if you will, uh, with algorithms and social media? Well, as long as people are tweeting enough, we can analyze the tweets over time and detect patterns. So one of the things we want to look at next would be things like um, public health care agencies like the WHO, CDC, Public Health Agency of Canada, and see what they said from the beginnings of the pandemic, ostensibly in, in China in uh, December, and, and also look at even news outlets, things like Fox News versus CNN versus CBC. What are the large-scale narratives? What, what are the networks telling us about what the kind of stories that they're presenting? Really interesting and uh, will be as we continue to watch this all play out, isn't it? Thanks, Anthony, for joining us. Great, thank you. That's Anthony Bonato, professor of mathematics at Ryerson University. It makes it makes me really think about uh, social media and the fact is, again, how much is PR agencies and how much is calculated and how much is actually from these leaders or from leaders of companies, as you mentioned, or from, from mainstream media. Mm-hmm. You think about it and how much weight do you hold in a personal account? So I'll ask you that, Sue, because I think as far huge. as I'm, you do, eh? You, yeah. You, be- I think it's really, uh, so. that's where people are getting their information now. We've, we've left so many traditional sources and now look to social media for our information. Look at why there's, there's so much fake news out there for real that people just kind of pass along because we're into it for the quick second, right? We, take, we read the headline and then we share information without taking the time to look into it or see what the actual source is from. So 
I think we get a lot of our information this way. Doesn't it seem to you, though, that the ones that get flagged the most are the most outrageous? Yes. That if somebody has it. And so in the case of Justin Trudeau, I was shocked when we heard that Professor Bonato said that he has tweeted 18,000 times mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a, you know, a set amount of and, and Donald Trump, 20,000. Yeah. So so very close to Donald Trump, who we hear is a Twitter machine. Yet I don't recall too many tweets from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So I think that if I it's... I think they're not as outrageous. Yeah, if it's, too, if it's right? not yeah. outrageous. So I think there are extremes. It's not like he's boring, oh. but maybe he uses it as more of a vehicle. And it seems to, you know, whether or not you're a Trudeau fan, um, it seems like his messages do, as mentioned by Bonato there, that, uh, you know, has a lot of consistency to them. Real, and, and, and really focused in on different sides of things, right? It's I mean like Donald Trump or not, he he elicits emotion, right? Yeah. One way or the other with his tweets, whereas it seems Justin Trudeau is more informational. So I guess that's the difference. Well, and you look at the two men, you can see that right off so, the top. So to me, that that was the unsurprising part. Yeah. But also, it also, uh, you know, underscores the example of, you know, people who've gotten into a lot of hot water yep. for putting things on social media, whether it's 3 a.m. or just off the cuff without following the lead of your you organization. Have to be careful. You are you, you are the brand. You are representing what's behind you, right? So you have to be careful what are, you post. Are you people telling will... me that it lives forever and people might screen cap things? It's weird, isn't it? I know. Truth, though. It's the way it is, eh? 849, and a new study links the presence of pro sports teams with higher rates of flu deaths in large cities, suggesting that keeping fans out of arenas during this COVID-19 pandemic is actually a good idea. We're joined this morning by Brian Sobang, an associate professor at the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, according to all this information, what do we know about what sports teams bring to a city in terms of health issues? Well, I think one of the things that our research is, uh, was uncovering was that um, when you go to a sporting event and you're sitting in the stands and watching the action, um, especially for a hockey season that occurs in the heart of the flu season, that um, we see flu transmission attributable um, to these cities or to these teams that are that are in these cities, and it's something that I think is important for the public to know in the light of the of the current pandemic, mm-hmm. um, in terms of um, what that would mean if, um, and in some places in the U.S., there's been discussion about this allowing fans at least a reduced capacity into some of these sporting events. So how widespread was this research and how many different cities were involved? So we looked at, as a, the data has 122 cities uh, within the United States. And we were looking at this data from the early 1960s up until 2016. So we're dealing with a fairly large sample um, of cities of, you know, of various populations across the United States. So, we're, so in, in that sense, we're, we're fairly... Um, we're, we we feel like we have a fairly robust look of of what's happening as it relates to um, flu transmissions um, within these uh, cities that get new sports teams. And Brian, you mentioned you know hockey during winter; it is kind of the peak of the flu season. So, did you find different rates for different sports then? Yeah, so we see some differences as it relates to, um, let's say, the National Hockey League, for example. Um, and compare it to, let's say, Major League Baseball, which didn't have um, as high of a rate. And that would seem to make sense, because when we think about Major League Baseball in a, in a 
in a current or in a normal season that usually begins around April regular season wraps up end of end of September early October um, in comparison to the National Hockey League um, that would start then in October and continue on um, until April so we do see some differences but even across all the the four sports leagues that we looked at we did see a positive increase uh, in flu transmission in these cities or flu mortality in these cities. Okay. And I understand it's not just the proximity of these people, but their actions when they're in their stands and let's say your favorite team scores a goal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about this, and I'm sure everybody who's been to a sporting event of of any size, right, whether it's uh, a Calgary Flames game or an Edmonton Oilers game or uh, your son or daughter's game, you know, they they may score a goal or score a point or have a great play and you're turning around and high-fiving uh, other people and things like that. And, and given what we've been um, hearing from the chief medical officer in Alberta and other health experts, I mean, these sort of um, uh, actions we see are, are certainly causes for transmitting the uh, COVID vaccine, but we would see that also uh, with flu as well. So lots of social contact. Uh, obviously, it does make a good case for not having fans in the seats mm-hmm. when exactly the NHL opens up and starts playing, too. Thanks for your perspective on this, Brian. Appreciate your time. No problem. Have a great day. You too. That's Brian Sobing, an assistant prof at the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the U of C. A Calgarian who just turned 100 years young joins us now. Now, we did try to reach him last week on his actual birthday, but he was busy. He was out playing a round of 18 holes of golf, as he does three times a week. So joining us now this morning, Harry McDonald Eisenhower, who is 100 years and six days old. Hi, Harry. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. You went out and played golf so the day before your birthday, I understand, but tell us about the actual celebration. What did it feel like to turn 100 years old, sir? Well, it was a very interesting celebration at the museum, which was kind enough to sort of take over everything uh, at their site. And uh, I was quite surprised by the things that would show up from uh, the West Nova Scotia Regiment and down east, which I was the last commanding officer during the war. And uh, many of our friends and family were there, and my golf partners, and it was all very nice. A little overwhelming, <laughs> but nice. Mm-hmm. Harry, I think a lot of us, you know, we want to have that longevity and we think that living to 100 would be the goal. So I'm wondering, you've probably been asked this in the past, what is the key for you to live a long life, to hit 100? What do you think it is? (laughs) Well, as I mentioned when I was interviewed before, I think that genes have a lot to do with it. Uh, Five of my siblings died between... 92 and 96, and my aunt died at 103. So uh, they've all done very well in that way, and I guess you have to look after yourself. I don't drink or smoke, I never have, and uh, I take things pretty easy. Had an enjoyable workplace at Dole Petroleum. That helps a lot, too, when you have to put in that 25 years working and also it made me financially independent so I didn't have to 
worry about finances during my latter years, and all in all, it's been very good. Harry, everybody has a vice or two, so if you didn't smoke or drink... What is your favorite thing? Did you like chocolate? Are you uh, do you like like going to restaurants to eat? I don't know if I can think of a particular vice. You're a man without vices. That's impressive. Yeah, I probably got something that I'm not aware of. I know what your vice is. Your vice is golf, isn't it? Well, if you want to call it a vice, <laughs> but I call it a pleasure and a sport, of course. I guess I'm probably getting a little old for that, but so far I've managed to cope. And plus, I don't walk anymore. I gave that up two years ago. So I always praying with the golf cart. Uh, Harry, I'm wondering if you can tell us. I remember my earliest memory was Christmas when I was about four years old. I remember the Christmas tree and a couple of the gifts uh, that I got. Do you remember your earliest memory, Harry? One thing I remember, it's rather unusual, was that I dropped the cover of the chamber pot and <laughs> and, and broke it. Now, <laughs> at that time, I was probably about four years old. And I remember after that, my sister taking me to school. I was probably five then. And I was up on the blackboard and... The dust caused my nose to bleed, mm-hmm. and somebody said that I said, "Christ, my nose is bleeding." <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that's one of my early memories. <laughs> Harry, do you do you you've reached one hundred? You're almost one hundred and one week old. Do you have any words of advice for the folks who are listening to you right now? I don't know if I had any except uh, to live well and hope to enjoy it. No advice, but I'm wondering, a hundred years, you've packed a lot in to a century. Do you have any regrets, anything that you left behind? No, I don't think so in the nature of regrets. I lost my first wife when we were married 15 years, and she was my high school sweetheart. So that was actually a great loss at the time. Fortunately, I've had a very lovely replacement. And my present wife, Ruth, who's still living at 95. Wow. Well, we're grateful to your daughter, Janice, and your golf partner, Jim Hope Ross, who got in touch with us and let us know about your special birthday. So a very happy belated birthday to you, Harry, and uh, wishing you many, many more rounds of golf. Uh, Well, thank you very much. I hope I will. Thank you, Harry, for joining us. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Harry McDonald Eisenhower turned 100 years old last week. Isn't that amazing? What just it's such amazing. a great story. So great to be able to chat with him. Yeah, it's still so playing fun. golf. Yeah, you think about it. And, and up until uh, a couple of years ago, he was actually walking the course. 54 holes a week he does, three on average. That's why we didn't hook up with him last week. On his busy. Ex- he's busy. He's, busy. He's, he's, he's got a busier schedule than I do, and I'm well less than half of his age. What's that say? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I do believe he's listening right now and going out golfing today, too. This morning. Yeah. So Wow. Yeah, he'll Incredible. be hitting the links as well. And with his uh, golf partner, Jim Hopross, who was really instrumental in sending me a lot of information about Harry and... Uh, and he, he said that, you know, before they went golfing last week, before his birthday, that he was giving Harry a hard time about how he'd be the first person that Jim knew to shoot his age 
and still not break 100. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I looked up uh, some tips here. This is from Chatelaine Magazine on how to live to be 100. Okay. And they have, uh, some are tongue-in-cheek, some are, are pretty serious. Be hairy. Be hairy. Golf three times. <laughs> yep. Number one, though, is never act your age. Now, in Okinawa, Japan, a region with the longest living people in the world, residents, believe it or not, are considered children until they're 55 years old. Mm. And that underscores that, you know, you're still, you're an adult at 55, so act like a child. Um, also, they're telling you to shut down stress in your life. Stress and the key. presence of stress will That's help key. you help keep you from being 100. Mm-hmm. Eat uh, quality. Now, quality foods, and this is what we hear again, whole it's not food. probably fast food, but, right? But <laughs> no. in other words, don't follow my diet, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but the big one, and you, we've heard this time and time again, and I hear that it is big in, in, in Japan, is calorie restriction. 30% fewer calories per day without eliminating the essential proteins, vitamins, and minerals. So in a lot of these, you know, cultures where they do have longevity, mm-hmm. the, the meals are smaller. That's Which true. Is crazy. Well, we eat like pigs. We know that here. But, you know, I think also what's important is is love and, you know, being touched. And Harry has a lot of loved ones in his life who still yeah. surround him to this day. And just, you know, his daughter Janice helps hook this up. And, you know, what an honor to have a, a your dad mm-hmm. still alive and well and healthy at the age of 100. Amazing. So Wow. And number four, I'll give you this one. The number four thing uh, you can do to live to be 100, okay. um, have quality Sleep and sex. Oh. So you and I don't have the sleep. 